On today's episode, I have the distinct honor of hearing Elizabeth Quiros's remarkable story of trauma, abuse, and suffering, and how she turned unimaginable tragedy into triumph. A victim of a broken foster care system, sex trafficking, and abusive relationships, she lived through addiction and a life of crime. The story doesn't end there, however. She has moved mountains to receive a governor's pardon, a college degree, and full custody of her son. She's a motivational speaker and co-founder of Redemption House of the Bay Area. To say you're going to be inspired by this incredible story is an understatement. If you are as moved by this story as I was, I hope you consider sharing it. As always, I'd be so grateful if you'd like, subscribe, and leave a review. And please send me a DM on Instagram at Kristen Mick to let me know your thoughts. Okay, let's dive in. Hi, my name is Kristen McAlizzi. I'm a mindset and empowerment coach, a mother of four, a proud wife, a sister, a friend, and a lover of life. Each week, I want to bring you conversations that will touch your heart, make you laugh, inspire you, teach you, and help you grow into the fullest, realest version of yourself. I believe when we dare to be vulnerable and share our stories, we see the humanness of one another and often recognize the bravery inside of ourselves. Whether it's extraordinary or seemingly ordinary, everybody has a warrior story. Welcome to The Warrior Within Us. Okay, so today I am so excited to be talking to Elizabeth Quiros. Did I say that well, Elizabeth? Yes, you did. (laughs) Um, And I'm so excited because we connected because Elizabeth's story was on... um, Love What Matters, which for those of you who don't know, is a, I think, primarily social media outlet that um, shares stories. So I, I pulled a little excerpt from their website just to get our um, listeners familiar with what they do. And it says, Love What Matters exists to spread real stories by real people far and wide to celebrate the love, kindness, and compassion they represent while reminding us that these things do not happen by default. They are a daily choice. So I was struck by Elizabeth's story and I remember being really excited because I immediately messaged her after reading her story and I said, you have to come on my podcast. And I was so excited that she was willing to do that. So um, thank you very much, Elizabeth, for agreeing to be here today. And um, I can't wait to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, That's the whole point. I tell my story is to plant seeds and to like, um, for other resources to open up and other doors open up. Right. And so we all have the goal of like helping others and that's why I do what I do. So thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually really the reason why I started this podcast to begin with is that I feel like when we hear other people's story, we can hear a piece of our story in their story and we all just feel more connected and more supported. So, um, like I said, thank you so much. And, why don't you start just by telling us a little bit of your background and um, what your story is? I think it's like exemplifies the word warrior. So obviously this podcast is called The Warrior Within Us. And I think you have an amazing warrior story. So I'd love for you to share it with us today. Thank you. Okay. So um, my story, you know, begins with a lot of abuse. And um, so for a very, like at a very young age, I didn't have goals. I didn't have visions. I didn't have like any hope that my life was going to be any different in a way it was. Right. 
So my abuse and my sexual abuse, physical abuse and sexual abuse started when I was four years old. Um, when I was with my grandmother, I was left with my grandmother and she, so to my understanding, she, she was, uh, she didn't like females. That's what I was told, but she didn't like, you know, there was just things that she didn't like about me. And so, um, but she liked my brothers. Right. And so she picked and choose on who she was, she was favoring. Right. And she just couldn't stand me. So whenever I would make her upset, I was four years old at this time. She would get me naked and she'll whoop me with a stick or a belt from head to toe. And my, my grandmother, you know, comes from a family of like alcoholic gang members. Um, that's the kind of family that I came from as well. So my, all her, her children were involved with gangs. So I remember like when I was at her house, there would be gang parties, right? There'd be uh, people come over, there'd be parties and there'd be all these men around. And when she was doing this, she was doing this in front of these men. So it's kind of like an amusement for them. And also too, like, she, like I said, she, she could, she didn't like me. So whenever I made her upset, this is what she would do. And when I was at my grandmother's house, I was also sexually abused. And so um, eventually my mom came back for me because she had left me there. So she finally came back for me and then the abuse continued to happen because my mom was re- continuing that cycle. The abuse happened to her as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, when she was growing up, she had a lot of sexual and physical abuse. And so I look at it like this, that my my grandmother and my mother were only implementing what it was taught to them, right? They were only repeating that cycle. And so that's how I'm able to be like, you know what, and have that forgiveness, be able to walk mm-hmm. in forgiveness and be and be like, okay, you know, this happened, but now how I'm able to turn it around and use my my pain for purpose and how I'm able to help others and shed light, right, around those situations. And so, like I said, the abuse continued to happen with my mother and I became very suicidal because that was a way for me to cope. That was a way for me to get out of that that abusive environment and for me i mean coping cutting is another form of abusive right you're hurt yourself harming yourself but for me that was a coping skill for me because i didn't know any other coping skills and so i remember i'll go to my room and after i would get beaten i would go to my room and i would cut my arms because it was like like i said to me it was an outlet and so um and i remember i used to kick holes in my walls and i used to put i hate you mother all over my walls because i was so angry inside of because what was happening and I felt like I didn't have a voice because there was times where I reached out to my dad because my dad wasn't around. He wasn't like he left when I was um, my mom and dad separated when I was around four or three years old. And so he wasn't there like I needed that father figure. I needed that protection. He wasn't there. So when I was able to pick up the phone and call him like, hey, this is what's happening. Can you come get me? He would tell me to pack up all my stuff and um, I'm going to come get you, but then break that promise and never come. So it's kind of like, I felt I didn't have anybody. I didn't have an outlet. I didn't have um, a phone. I, I didn't have nobody to tell what was going on. So I felt like that cutting was a way for me just to be able to escape. Right. And, and obviously it's not. And um, there would be times where my mom would uh, have me get in the bathtub. And when she had me get in the bathtub, I will come out wet. And then that's where she'll hit me from head to toe with a leather belt. And it'll leave bruises and welts all over my body. And that was, I want to look at it like that was a tactic you know, that she was doing. Um, But I thought it was normal. I thought this was what children go through, right? Because nobody told me anything otherwise. You know, I would go to school and get beat up at school and be bullied at school because I had, um, you know, ripped up clothes, um, uh, secondhand clothes because we were living in poverty, right? We were living in, um, in, on welfare and low income housing. And so I would come to school with messed up teeth. My hair was messed up and I had these, you know, these old clothes. And a lot of the kids picked on me. And so they would bully me and beat me up. And so 
I was always scared. Like every time a kid would come up to me and say, hey, I'm going to see you after after school, I would scream and cry and break down in so much fear. And so nobody's seen those red flags and those signs of why this child is acting out in this type of manner, right? Or what's going on with the bullying? Like why people are bullying her? And so all these red flags I always displayed and nobody asked me questions of what was going on at home. Because obviously that's a red sign, that's a red flag that something's going on at home. Mm-hmm. And so... I will go home and, and endure the same abuse at home. And so eventually, you know, at the age of 14, I was raped by an older man and his friend was driving the car. And I didn't know it was rape because nobody told me about good touches, bad touches. Nobody told me about consent and what was okay, what was not okay. I just assumed that this was attention and any attention was good attention, right? Because I wasn't receiving good attention, obviously. I was receiving bad, so I assumed it was good, right? Because I didn't know the difference. And so... um when this man was raping me in the backseat of the car, his, like I said, his friend was driving the car and I didn't know what was going on. He was an older man and I was 14 years old, so I didn't know what was happening. And so eventually another situation where when I was with my mother, um, we got into a huge fight. She ended up, um, I had a, a, a tan, right? Came from the river and I had a tan. And she ended up pouring chemicals all over my body and over in my mouth. So this, this chemicals, it burns my skin. And I remember, you know, she threw me in the bathtub and she poured all this stuff over me and I'm sitting there screaming at her, telling her to stop because it was burning my skin. And she turned on the faucet and she turned on the water and, and the water was draining the chemicals off of me. And she told me, she said, you're, you're pathetic. And then she went downstairs. I remember sitting there and my, yeah, I was 14 at this time. So eventually I, I had this courage all of a sudden. I decided to do something. I needed to do something, stand up for myself. So I ran downstairs, you know, picked up the phone, calling the police. And I even told her, you're going to jail. Like I was confident she was going to jail picked up the phone and I called and they came, but all they did was refer to a social worker. They left me there with her. So when they walked out that door, all I could think of was, well, I can't even trust law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Like I'm making all these efforts to like tell my truth and tell what's going on. And it seems like all the doors were closing. Right. I'm like, well, I obviously can't trust law enforcement. They're leaving me with my abuser. So I'm, I don't know what to do. And so they walked out and eventually another day we end up going to see the social worker and they did place me in the foster care system because they realized, okay, this is what's, what's going on at home. It's abuse. So they placed me in the foster care system. And the foster home I was with, like I was placed in was, the parents were abusive as well. There was another mentally ill child I was living with that was around eight years old, couldn't speak or talk. All he did was scream because that was his way of vocalizing what was going on. And they will beat him. They'll take him to the room and beat him. And I hear this screaming happening. I'm like, well, why am I even here? If I don't even know these people, and I, I'm in total fear. When I can go back to my mom's, at least I know her, right? And, and it's the same abuse, but like, at least I know her. Right, and like the, the whole oh, devil you know yeah. is better than the devil you don't know, right? Yeah, so it's like, why am I even here? And so, and I remember they put padlocks in the fridge where we weren't allowed to eat only when they fed us. And so I just took off. Like, I didn't feel safe anywhere. I didn't feel safe at the foster home. I didn't feel safe with my mom. I just wanted to be safe somewhere and be a child, right? A be because at this point I'm an adolescent. I just wanted to have like be a, have my childhood. So I went to um, I didn't go to my dad's. And when I went to my dad's, um, he didn't expect me to come. I just showed up at his doorstep, and so he let me come in. Um, but he was already like he was drinking here and there, right? He was a he was an alcoholic, and so basically he wasn't able to meet my needs. I'm coming with PTSD, trauma, depression, suicidal thoughts. Like I'm 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 coming with all this trauma, and he wasn't able to meet my needs. And so, um, I was, I tried to overdose at his house. I took pills and um, alcohol thinking I, you know, if I 
if I take my life or if I disappear or if I end up in the hospital, somebody's going to just love me and care for me, right? Because that's all I really wanted. And so, um, so eventually I, when I took the pills and the alcohol, I woke up the next day, just waking up on my, okay, I'm still here. So now I got to put myself together and go to school. Right. So I went to school and like I said, like I, nobody's seen the signs at school because I was flunking all my classes. I had D's and C's. I had F's sometimes. I, sometimes I wouldn't even show up to class. I would ditch and I would go hang out with older people and start getting loaded. I was starting an experiment with drugs and nobody seen the signs. Nobody pulled me in the office, asked me questions. Um, but I do remember there was this one therapist that um, did ask me why I had cuts on my arms. So she did. She asked me what, what's going on, what, what's up with the cuts. And then I explained to her um, what I was doing because nobody really asked me questions. So I was like, oh, this is awkward for me. This is weird. And so, but I told her what I was doing and she referred me to a therapist. And because I, when I went to go see the therapist, my dad was like, well, no, we're not going to continue that. You're not going to be put on medication because you're going to be a drug addict if you be placed on medication. And he's not a doctor, right? But the thing is, it's like that, that whole, um, you have a, a mental health when you have a disability. And when people, are, when, when people talk about medication, they think, oh, there's a stereotype, there's a stigma, right? Oh, you don't need medication. That just means you're crazy. And that's not true. It, it, it's supposed to stabilize us and help us work through our root issues. And so um, eventually, you know, I was denied medication. I was denied seeing the therapist. So I ended up just, you know, just continuing on with this trauma, right? And eventually I ended up meeting an older man and this older man came and he's 27 years old. I was 15 at the time. He told me he was 19, but I was super naive, you know, I was super naive, uh, vulnerable. And when he told me he was 19, I believed him. And so he said, you're beautiful. You're gorgeous. What's your name? Let's connect all the good things. Like a, a child that's hurting, that's coming from that type of background wants to hear, you know, right? Like all that good attention. I thought it was good attention. And so, and I call this the grooming process, the honeymoon phase, like when, when it's all beautiful and, and pretty in the beginning. Right. And so I started hanging out with him. I started hanging out with him. I was going out with him. Um, he was getting me loaded off ecstasy pills, smoke, uh, you know, giving me weed to smoke. Um, and when he would take me to hotel rooms and I would be loaded off ecstasy pills, this is where he would start to sodomize me. He would have me sexually perform on him and he was sodomizing me. And I was, I couldn't consent because I was super loaded, first of all. And second, second of all, I'm 15 years old. He's 27 years old. He's, this is a grown man, right? And so, but like I said, I didn't have any idea or tools or, you know, awareness around what was happening to me. And so eventually I brought him to my dad. And my dad was drinking at the time. And I said, dad, this is my new boyfriend. And he told him, oh, as long as you date, you, you know, don't take my daughter to projects. You wear protection. You could totally date my daughter. And this man was bald-headed, tattooed up. You know what I mean? Like right in your living room. And my dad said, go ahead, be with my daughter. And so I took off with him. The next, I want to say a couple of days later, like two in the morning, I packed up all my stuff and I took off and ran away with this man. Cause I felt like that he was the answer to all my prayers, right? He was the answer to all my problems. And so, um, but it didn't stay pretty. It didn't stay um, in the honeymoon phase. It eventually started getting really abusive and it started to get really ugly. Um, there was times where, I would catch him cheating on me and I would, you know, didn't want to be with him anymore. And I would, you know, run to the bathroom and I call, I would call my dad. I called my dad this one time and I said, dad, um, I don't want to be here anymore because I had took off, right? I was missing. And when I called him, he said, where are you at? I said, well, I can't tell you that. All I can say is that I don't want to be here and I want to come home. You know, when I come home, he said, well, if you don't come home tonight, don't ever come back. And basically that's what he told me. 
And so you don't tell that to an adolescent. You don't tell that to a child that calls to reach out for support. You just leave your door open. Like, look, you know what? I'm always going to be here and wherever you're at. I'll come get you. But if you can't tell me, no, I'm always going to be here. Right. And then let, uh, notify law enforcement. I don't even know if he did that. He just basically told me, if you don't come back, don't come back at all. So when he said that to me, I totally like, it's like I couldn't breathe. I hung up the phone. I just felt like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is, I can't go nowhere else. Where am I going to go? I can't go back to my mom's because she's going to continue to beat me. Obviously can't go to the police because I can't trust them. And I'm not going to go back to my dad's because he just told me I can never come back. So where am I supposed to go? Right. So I ended up just staying with this man and being with him, that abuse continued to happen. And so this is where he started to um, have me go to 16th Mission in San Francisco, holding on to his drugs. So I would put drugs in my mouth. And I would put drugs in other areas of my body. So I became a mule for him. While I was holding on to his drugs, he was making the sales and um, to these people on the streets. And he was part of a prison gang. And so a part of his prison gang, he would have all his homies come down to meet him downtown. And I couldn't even look at them. If I looked at any man that came across my direction, even if I was looking to walk and I, I didn't want to trip off anybody, if I looked at him, he would slap me and make me look down on the floor. And this is where he was starting to train me to look down always on the floor. So... Throughout my years, you know, in my addiction and in and out of correctional facilities, I always, I had male probation officers or male parole officers. I always, I, I always had to look down on the floor. I couldn't look them in the eye and they assumed because I was a drug addict or I was high. And, and that could be one of the signs that a person's on drugs. But my thing was, I was, I, that was the mindset I had developed being trafficked as a child. And so those are one of the red flags. If they came, if they can't make eye contact with you, that's a huge red flag. You need to investigate, see what's going on. But a lot of law enforcement at that time wasn't educated around trafficking. And so, and that's one of my goals too, is to bring awareness around that and to, you know, be that bridge between victims and law enforcement. Like, hey, this is the signs. This is what you need to do. You need to make that extra step, that extra effort to ask questions, right? And rather than assume that they're a criminal, right? Or they're an addict and that's it. And so um, eventually, like I said, when I was down there, this is all part of the honeymoon phase. Um, well, no, now we're in the grooming process, right? Because the honeymoon phase got the honeymoon phase got over, uh, became over. So now this is the grooming process, and um, he was just preparing me on what he wanted me to really do for him, right? And so eventually he ended up getting arrested, and he sent an older woman to me. So this lady was on, around fifty years old, right? And I was fifty. I think I was. I just turned sixteen at this time. So this lady was huge. She was taller than me and way bigger than me. And I was super tiny. If you see my mug shots, you can tell I was a little girl, right? <laughs> so um, eventually I ended up uh, connecting with this woman and she told me, she said, you know, we're going to make money. We're going to make money. And this is what we're going to do. And I said, well, I I'm assuming we're going to rob people or we're going to sell drugs or rob a store. But she told me I needed to sleep with Johns. And when I told her, I said, I don't want to sleep with Johns. And she said, well, you have no choice because it's part of the rules the streets of part of the rules and the codes of the streets and so I was afraid and I had no choice so I did you know what she told me to do and I started sleeping with these johns and um and she was taking my money so all that money I was supposed to get to support me and my boyfriend that was incarcerated she took the money there was times where I would have johns drop me off at a different location and I kept the money but she will find me and get the money and so um there was times why I robbed Johns and put knives to her necks because I didn't want to sleep with them. That's not what I, that's not what a 16 year old gets out of bed and wants to do. Right. But I was surviving. And so I will, I put a knife to his neck and robbed him and took the money. And, um, I could have died in those situations. Like literally he could have grabbed the knife and stabbed me. So any of those situations I could have died, but by the grace of God, like my higher power is God and I believe in him. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
my by the grace of God, I'm here today and I'm I'm able to be alive and you know to tell to tell my story of what happened. And so when I would uh when I robbed that that John for, for his money, I ended up finding out it was counterfeit. I got in a taxi and I found out it was it was fake money. And so I remembered crying and screaming because like I just did this and it was fake money, right? And I didn't realize it was fake because it was dark. And so um I remember the taxi driver turned over and he said, can I pray for you? And I said, um, I was really mad at God at the time, right? Because of everything that I had been through. And can I, he said, can I pray for you? I said, yeah, go ahead. And so he, he prayed for me. And at that point, I felt like, you know, now I see that my higher power was with me through all, all those situations. And so, but at the time I couldn't see. So eventually uh, he, my boyfriend, my boyfriend ended up getting out. And I told him what happened because I felt like that he needed to know what happened because I did, I felt like I was you know betraying him right because I didn't know if he knew or not but in reality he did he did because they were both from the same prison gang they were both working it working together at tag teaming it so when he got out and I told him he said well if you did it for her you can do it for me so much show me how much you love me and I was all about loyalty because I wanted that in return right mm -hmm. and so um I went back out he took me back out to the street 16th mission um 20th shot will 17th cap dressed me up and he put me out into multiple cars and multiple shacks. And I remember being in the shack, you know, and these men are rotating on me and he's outside collecting the money. And yeah, it did hurt me because I'm like, this, this is my boyfriend. How, how can he not be okay? Like, how can he be okay with me sleeping with these men? But that's what it was for me. I didn't have any other solution, right? I didn't have any other uh, choice. So eventually, um, even at the end of the night, he would take me home and like wash my body and give me a bath and tell me he loves me. And I thought that was love. I'm like, Everything that just happened is out the window because he loves me. He's spending this time with me. And this is like, this is something that had happened when I was with my mother as well, because she would, you know, when she would beat me at night, she would hold me and tell me she loves me. So I had this mindset of a sick love, right? I thought that it was love. And so eventually I ended up getting hooked on meth. So I was hooked on meth for about six, uh, for about 12 years. So at the age of 16, I got, I tried meth for the first time. And then I just continued to use throughout the years. And so eventually he got arrested. And he, uh, you know, he was telling me what to do through the phone. He was telling me how to sell weed. He was telling me to come visit him. And um, I was going through the metal detectors, visiting my boyfriend uh, in jail with a fake green card, right? Underage. <laughs> and he was telling me what to do through the phone. So trafficking can still happen through the phone while they're, while they're in jail. And so, um, so like I said, just throughout the years in and out of correctional facilities um, on drugs, when I had, I, he was my first trafficker. The female was my second trafficker. And then when he ended up getting arrested and got deported, I still continued to sell myself because that was a way for me to survive. That's how I knew how to make money. I mean, I didn't have a resume. I didn't have um, a career. I didn't have a high school diploma. I was a high school dropout. So I didn't know any other way. And so um, I went to Valley State Prison at the age of 23. Um, like I said, just in and out of correctional facilities, selling drugs, um, you know, started to get into um, identity theft, cashing fake checks to pay off my debts because I ended up meeting my third trafficker and he would give me a large amount of dope to sell for him. And I, I honestly thought I had arrived. I thought this was my career, right? So I was really excited to have that much amount of drugs to sell for him. But in reality, I didn't know what was going on with what was going, what was happening, right? And so eventually, you know, I would be in debt with this man because I would get arrested for his, for his drugs. Couldn't tell on him, couldn't snitch, right? Because that was the rules of the streets get out and be in debt. So I would continue to have sell drugs, sell drugs for him and, and pay off my debt. And then um, there was times where I would get in his car 
and I would, he would give me, I would give him the money I owed, but I would still be in debt because I would like, there was like a thousand dollars left over I still owed. He would give me more drugs to sell. But before I can even get out the car, I had to perform. I had to give him oral sex or I had to sleep with him. And then I can leave the car. So that together with sexual, with uh, sex trafficking and also a uh, labor trafficking, because it's like when you're, um, have a continuous debt, like I was always in debt with this man, even if like when I paid him off, he still would not let me leave the car until I took more dope because it's like he, it's like he owned me. Right. So I was like in a forever debt with this man. Um, and so I would have to take the dope and, and go sell and continue to pay him what I had, what, whatever I owed him and continue to be with debt with him. And so, um, eventually at the age of 26, I was arrested for the last time. And, um, that's where I decided I needed to do something different because I had just had my baby, right? I got pregnant and throughout my pregnancy, I continued to sell and I was using. And so um, I couldn't, like nothing else changed my mind about changing my lifestyle until I got arrested for that last time. And I realized I had left them at a dope house, right? And the police told me because they were already doing an investigation on my trafficker and his uncle. So, and they knew they got to me, they can get to him, right? And so they, they were doing an investigation on me. And so when they arrested me, they said, well, you tell us who you're working for. I said, well, if I'm going to tell you, I need you to take me to go see my son so I can say goodbye to him because I already knew I was going away for a long time. They said, yes, they made that deal with me. And so when I told them that, when I told them who I was working for, I already knew once I snitched, I can never, or once I told the truth, I can never go back to the streets, right? I already knew that. And so, but I, I was willing to, I, I chose my son at that moment. I wanted to say goodbye to him. And so, um, I told them what was going on, what, what I, who I was working for. And they eventually um, took me straight to jail. They didn't take me to go see my son. But I already knew, I had a feeling like, okay, you know, I can't trust law enforcement, right? And, um, but that was my mindset at the time. Now I can trust them because it, there's good ones and then there's bad ones. So I choose to collaborate with the good ones. And so um, eventually I went to jail. I ended up getting five years between two different counties, but that's where that needed to happen so I can wake up. So I can have a second chance at life, right? So I can give my son a, a, a fighting chance. He, I don't have to, he doesn't have to continue that cycle, right? I can end the cycle and then my son can have a totally different life, right? And so um, I ended up getting my GED when I was incarcerated. I completed a program called Starting Point. Um, I ended up getting out and going to another program called Women's Recovery Services. And in, in that program, I learned about how I was a trafficking victim, not a child prostitute. So when I learned about that, it lift off a burden and all this um, fear and anxiety off of me because I felt like I had the power to share my story because it wasn't my fault. All those years, I was ashamed because I thought it was my fault. I put myself in those situations. And you, children don't have a say, right? Like they, stuff, stuff happens where they ended up in, in those type of situations. So that's why there's no such thing as a child prostitute. Um, we're victims of trafficking, right? And so... Um, like I said, I was able to start sharing my story and then I completed that program. And in 2014, I decided to go back to school. And when I went back to school, that's where I connected with the Bear Cup Scholars. I connected with the Second Chance Club for formerly incarcerated students. And I started sharing more of my story. And because um, I had the goal of becoming a counselor, that's what I wanted to do, right? I wanted to give back with my story. And so um, eventually, you know, like I said, I became part of the uh, the Second Chance Club, and they asked me to be a president of that club. So when I told the advisor, well, I can't lead this club because this club, like, my background is bad. <laughs> like, I come from a really bad background. I've been through a lot, and I've done a lot of bad stuff, so I can't lead these people. 
And she told me, she said, well, it doesn't matter what your past, your past is your past. Like you're different today. She said, I have total faith that you can totally lead this club. So when she said that to me, it, it literally sparked up this, this fire to just lead this club. So I became the president of the club. I led the club and for about three years. And now it's a full-blown program with over a hundred students, right? Wow. Because of the advocacy, because of the, the passion I have, right? And so with my, and my vice president, right? I collaborate with the vice president and the advisor of the club. So now we, with all of our efforts, we, it's now a full-blown program. And so 2018, I got a, um, I got a, a governor's pardon. So I don't know if everybody's familiar with the governor's pardon. So what that is, it's like top of the line expungement, right? So you have the expungement process of your criminal record. Then you have the certificate of rehabilitation for people that's been to prison. And then you have the governor's pardon. And so I was able to get a, an expungement of my record, a certificate of rehabilitation and a governor's pardon, which it took about a couple of years to get done, but it finally happened. And so um, that was huge for me to give me that restoration um, redemption that my I needed right to be successful and and for the society to forgive me for my past for my past incarcerations right and so um eventually 2019 I graduated with three AAs human services social advocacy and behavioral science with highest honors um walking that stage was huge for me because I was breaking every cycle in my family because nobody in my family has degrees so for me to do that was breaking all those cycles right and giving hope to my family because I know even though I don't talk to them, I know some of them are watching from the sidelines and they're thinking, okay, if she can do it, I can do it, right? And that's my, that's one of my passions, right? To inspire others, even if it's from a distance. And so um, I went to Sonoma State University, just graduated in May with um, my bachelor's with the extinction. So that's huge for me to walk the stage to get my bachelor's, you know? And so now I'm currently at Arizona State online to get my master's in human rights, social justice and human rights. And so I'm a motivational speaker now. Like I go all over the place. I share my story. I bring hope to others to let them know, hey, it's not, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose, right? If you're alive, there is still a plan for you. Like use your pain for purpose. Like use your um, trauma for triumph. You want to turn it around, right? And let's not give those people that victimize us or hurt us or abuse us any more power over our lives. Let's, let's pick ourselves up and move forward. And so, um, that's why I, I do what I do today. And I got my son back. I fought nine years for him. And I finally um, received full custody in last December. And that took a while, <laughs> but I finally got him back. And so it's amazing to be his mom full time and watch him blossom because he goes to school. Um, he's always taking the bus. He loves, like he's 10 years old right now, but he's super like um, sophisticated. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, he's like a little independent guy. I have a couple of those. Um, too. Yeah. So um, very intelligent. He's a YouTuber. He's just super smart. And I love my kid. Like, like, I couldn't see all this gifts he had from a distance, right? When he was with my mom. But now that he's with me, I'm able to see all these little gifts he has, you know? So it's just an honor to be his mother, to um, be a part of his life growing up, right? And I, he, he hears me share my story here and there. And so... You know, I want him to grow up knowing that he can share his story too, right? Because he's got a story as well. We all do. And so to know, and I want him to know too, that I fought for him, that mommy didn't give up and that I continue to fight, fought for him, right? To get him back with me. And so I'm married now. We, uh, me and my husband have a blended family. He's got four kids. I have one. So we have five all together. And, um, and I'm currently the, the co-founder of Redemption House of the Bay Area. So me and my partner, Lisa McQuaid, we both came together and, um, had this vision, this passion to open up a safe house here in Sonoma County to help other trafficking victims. 
And so um, we just became established 501c3. And so, and now what we're doing is we're just out there, you know, doing street outreach, um, facilitating support groups to have victims come to the support groups to feel loved, feel a part of, and that they're not damaged goods, they're not broken, right? They have a purpose um, to build them from the ground up and to, um, and just continue to promote Redemption House and let people know that, hey, this is here. Now let's get this safe house started so we can house these women. They're not out there on the streets, right? And so, um, so that's the long-term goal of Redemption House of the Bay Area. So um, that's a little bit of my story. <laughs> I'm not far, but I'm on a time limit. So I no, no, no. That is amazing. And uh, I just... takes my breath away I'm often I'm not often at a loss for words but honestly like just to hear that and and you know I just want to comment on the end of that in Redemption House and that like you're giving people an opportunity that you never had you know and and the fact that there wasn't an alternative for you because you didn't get your needs met as a child um you know that you're giving other people the opportunity to have what you didn't have. And, um, you know, it really struck me when you said you turned pain into purpose. I've said that before. And, and your story is just the perfect example of how there are alternative outcomes, um, that are possible. And you're the social proof. You're the proof that, you know, even in the worst of circumstances that m- most people, I mean, couldn't even imagine that you yeah. could take that kind of hardship and those kind of um, horrible things that no human should ever have to suffer through and turn it yeah. into this story of redemption. And, you know, I, it's hard for me not to tell you that I'm proud of you. And even though we just met to just hear the the kind of, you know, things that you had to go through and, and, and to come out of it on the other side, I just can't, I can't put into words how inspiring that is. And, you know, how much encouragement and empowerment that gives other people to say, like, you are, you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances, that there is a, a different way. And no matter what your past is, no matter what thing, you know, to remove that shame and that guilt and realize that like, it is your birthright to yeah. experience joy and to have pride in yourself and to, yeah. um, you know, reap the rewards of what life should be being yeah. a mom, being able to see your son in, in accomplish the things that he is going to accomplish, um, that you shouldn't have to earn that. And, and yeah. no, no amount of um, things that have happened to you or things that you participated in clearly as a victim erase the worthiness that you have to live the best life that you could live, you know? And to me, it's just um, remarkable that you want to take all of that pain and all of, all of the horrible things that you went through and help somebody else not have to suffer the same way you did. Um, I think that that is just, I can't think of anything more beautiful than that. Um, and I just am filled with such gratitude that you are willing to share your story. Um, because I, I think 
even if it just changed one life, that yeah. would be enough. But, you know, to me, it could change so many lives, not even people who have been through the same thing as you, but people who are just like down on their luck or feeling like I'm stuck because, you know, my parents did things this way and my grandparents did things this way. So I have to, too. It's like, no, you can make a different choice. And you had every odds stacked against you to be able to get out of your circumstances. And, and you, you know, the fact that you didn't give up and now look at what you're, you know, God, whoever anybody believes in God, a higher power, look at how you're being used now to make change. And I I just think it's amazing. And I just thank you so much for sharing your story. I want people to follow you because I just think that everything you're doing, I mean, I just want to see where you're going to go from here, because (laughs) I know that it's, it's going to be really, um, I'm glad that I'm talking to you now because I I bet you if I tried to talk to you in a few years, I I wouldn't even be able to get you to pick up the phone. (laughs) I will always be for the people. (laughs) I will always make time for the people. Wherever my higher power God is taking me, like I'm always going to make time for my people. So yeah. That's amazing. So tell us how we can follow you and how we can help Redemption House because I think that that's also something that... um, I don't know. I'm very interested in, in helping in any way that I can. And so if you could just let us know. So you can reach me, um, at my, in my, on my social media platform. Um, so it's cute. I believe I my heart. Let me look, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I, I put um, it in the show notes too. So, okay. So it's Kiros Elizabeth 2015. So that's on Instagram, or you can look me up on Facebook at Miko Elizabeth Kiros. And so awesome. those are two show, uh, social media platforms. Um, Redemption House of the Bay Area, you can look on what, um, you can actually look on both Instagram and Facebook. Just look up Redemption House of the Bay Area and you can find it on both platforms. Yeah. Awesome. And I just think too, like you sharing your story, just, just the realness of it is that, you know, it's, the, it's kind of the behind story that most people don't see when we, yeah. you know, sort of are fed this idea from society about like, this is what this means, you know, um, especially with human trafficking, we see so much of, of, about it, like either on social media or in the news. And it's like, we're not getting real stories. We're just getting like the tail end of, of, um, the situation. And I just think to hear it from somebody who's been through it and been a victim, um, you know, yeah. So those are one of my, um, my goals too. My passion is that we don't have a lot of survivors stepping up. We do have some, but not a lot. And it's because of, there's a lot of stigma and judgment around people that's been, um, that's been trafficked because either the community, um, not everybody's doing this, but what I've heard and what I experienced myself is that people assume, oh, well, you could just go out of it. Like why you put yourself there or, um, or, or you're just a prostitute. Like there's so much stigma stereotype around it. And so, or there's a lot of shame and guilt, um, amongst that victim so they don't want to share right they don't want to talk about because they don't want to be judged by nobody or they don't they're afraid the trafficker is going to find them or whatever the case may be Mm. so my goal is to inspire them and get them out of that fear right to be bold and be courageous and share their story because their story is going to help somebody right honestly like I had a lot of fear around my traps my traffickers as well and they were involved with gangs and and, in the drug scene and all of that but when I decided to change my scenery and I, I relocated to a different city, you know, different city and stuff. Um, and I've been out of the life, right? 
I'm still alive. I'm still here today. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm testifying what, what happened, what I've been through. So it's kind of like that fear of, you know, the, um, the retaliation is gone. Like, I don't have that fear anymore, right? Because I'm still standing and I'm still alive today. It's, I want to touch as many people as I'm able to before I leave this planet. So that's my, that's what fires me up, but I want to be able to give that to others as well and rise them up to be the same leader, like same leader and have the same boldness. So that's what I do what I do. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think just like knowing that you're loved, like, you know, it's like, I I saw something recently about like, if people can hate for no reason, then I can love you know, hate a stranger for no reason. I can love a stranger for no reason. And I can honestly say like, I love you. I think you're just a beautiful person. And, you know, I just, there's no piece of your story that could change my mind on your worthiness. So I just, I really thank you. And I'm so glad that I've had the opportunity to meet you and talk with you. And I hope that we can stay connected and have future conversations, because I think that this is just something that needs to be destigmatized and talked about and, and people just need to, um, break down the system and, and change things because this just shouldn't happen to anybody. So thank you so much for your participation and thank you for talking to me today. And I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Yes. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. What an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it and you want to hear others like it, I would love it if you check out the links in the podcast description. I'd be so grateful if you would subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who would also enjoy it. You can also find me over on Instagram at K-R-I-S-T-I-N-M-I-C or visit my website at www.thewarriorwithinus.com. Talk to you soon. Thank you.